Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Today on the show, we are going to discuss Waco, the Netflix miniseries uh, that came out this year, but it was originally on the Paramount Network in 2018, uh, starring Michael Shannon and Taylor Kitsch. Uh, it's, it's a scripted event series based on the 1993 Waco, Texas siege. Do you remember this? I do. Um, I have to say that in 1993, I was probably n- not that, like, not that interested in world mm-hmm. events. I had spent six months living overseas uh, right before that, but I and I was here, and I do rem- like in the footage in this series. Like, I remember that footage on television; it looked really familiar. Um, my understanding of what was happening, even though I was an adult, was probably very limited okay i was i was a kid and i remember my mom and her best friend talking about Mm. and and uh, and my so her best friend her daughter was also a good friend of mine so it was like the four of us and i remember stacy and i watching the footage Mm. on tv and i remember because it was like 51 days yeah and so when you're younger, you you're looking at that and you're like, what the hell is going on? And like you said, you get one side of it. Mm-hmm. And then I also remember when when he died and it blew up. And I remember that whole like vague, you know, I have like vague right memories of it. But I do remember it being like, wow, this is really crazy. Yeah. So this was a, a raid by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Um, there was a standoff between... David Koresh and the People's Temple, right? People's Temple? Am I saying that right? The People's Temple? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> My apologies. I'm reading about Jim Jones right now. Oh yeah, now. I was like that's I am, not I'm studying. Yeah. So we're going to do a series on Jim Jones uh at some point whenever I am done researching. And so I am knee deep in the cult that Jim Jones built. And now we're talking about David Koresh and his cult. So yeah, he was, he, had I his may own, get confused. He had his own branch off the seventh day Adventist church. Um, also known as the shepherd's rods. Um, so he branched off, uh, starting the branch Davidians. There it is. Branch Davidians. Thank you. Yeah, And then, so based out of Mount Carmel, center in Waco, right outside of Waco, Texas. So they have a standoff mm-hmm. <laughs> for 51 days. Yeah, I mean, so the original, um, what what ends up happening is they, 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 the federal agency starts to believe that David is having sex with underage girls, women, and then um, that's also compounded by their suspicion that he has illegal firearms, which is why the ATF even gets involved. So up until this point, um, as far as them being a physical threat, they had really been keeping to themselves. And I think that was because he was, he had, what, 
17 wives or something, many of which were well under age. So they were keeping to themselves for to because that would have been incredibly problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it was also, you know, they worried that he had illegal firearms in there as well and that children were being abused. So we use the word cult because, and not everybody calls them a cult. So I'm just going to throw that out there yeah. that um, there are a lot of, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's been such an interesting topic for um, documentaries and miniseries and books and things is because it's still, it's very divisive and it's extremely complicated. I, you know, it, we're not historians. We're not taking you on a conspiracy theory at all. There are basically two conspiracies that happened with this situation is one who shot first, basically the FBI or the branch Davidians and who started the fire. Those are the two like conspiracies and things that we don't have answers and that both sides have very like proof and complicated narrative around how their side didn't do it or what have you. And so we're, we're actually, we don't know the answers to those things. Yeah. And even the, I don't know, even know if this is a fact or more of, um, uh, one, another one of, um, just the conspiracies, which is the reason why they were red flagged was because a UPS representative was concerned by a, a local driver who uh, said a package had broken open on the way on a delivery, you know, on the way to the Branch Davidian residence, revealing firearms, grenades, or grenade casings, and black powder. That I believe was suppo- the supposed trigger to ATF and FBI getting involved. So before that, they sort of remained mm. away and quiet. That was what. I don't know how they suspected the sexual abuse and that stuff. Yeah, I don't. I honestly, I mean, I even obviously spoke, uh, misspoke the name of the cult earlier because I'm researching something else. That's how much I don't know and won't speak to like the history or the conspiracies of this. Um, I do know that, you know, even the history books make mistakes and there's a lot of unanswered questions about this. But um, I think psychologically speaking you know david koresh i i could see i mean i know there's some controversy around calling it a cult but it looks seems like a cult to me well okay so right so let's put aside whether they shot first or fbi shot first or whether there were illegal firearms in there i think that's the part maybe to go to first is it was a cult regardless Mm of how we're classifying dangerousness Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And I know this is sort of your area, so I'll let you start, but I agree with you. Why do you say that? Um, I say that because of, um, so so we're gonna get into a little bit later more about the series, but I'm gonna bring it in because it's all intertwined. The way this series is portrayed, Taylor Kitsch, they portray um, David Crush as very sympathetic. And I think there's a specific reason that they do that, which I think is a good one, in that they were trying to portray him the way his followers saw him mm-hmm. and what they and what they saw in him and the hope and the fantasy, I'll say fantasy, that's my word, um, the of what 
the world is what it could be when you're looking for a strong, sympathetic, loving leader. And many of them found that in him. It didn't really go that way in the end, obviously. But and so there was they they weren't allowed to have sex with each other. They weren't allowed to go anywhere. The controls on what they could do, who they could talk to, who they could sleep with, what they could eat. Everything was controlled by David Koresh. And that is one of the things that we see in across the board cult leadership. The isolation is always a thing, like isolating them, having them live there, having them do everything for the leader, um, again, this is a really sympathetic portrayal of David Koresh, and I have not done the kind of studying on David Koresh that I've done on others, but I like the... But also like the use of scripture to justify his decision. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm you're not allowed to sleep with your wife because, you know... Yeah, there's always a good reason. <laughs> using scripture, like the <laughs> spiritual narcissism we've talked about before on this show of he had an answer for everything, and if you went against his answer, then you were defying... God's word. Well, yeah. And that's probably why I misspoke at the beginning because that was Jim Jones too. I mean, Jim Jones yeah. was a preacher. So, yeah. you know, it, often religion comes into these things. Mm -hmm. um, um, Manson, although a very different kind of character, had his own uh, religious mm -hmm. uh, undertones. They're often lecturers. They're preacher types. Uh, but yeah, those are my initial thoughts about it yeah. being a cult. It just feels like a cult. And yes, there was underage sex going, there was, you know, statutory rape going on. And um, yeah, women being forced to, young women being forced to marry him and have his children. Mm -hmm. I think he had, I think he had like 11 wives and 17 kids or something, something like that, something along the lines of that. But so I think the people would say, well, that's just polygamy. That's not right. a cult. I mean, I think that's how the other the other perspective comes about. Absolutely. So let's let's go with that. Let's say it's just polygamy. Mm -hmm. um, my opinion is if someone is too young to speak for themselves and choose that mm -hmm. and it's by force, then fine. You can call it polygamy, too. It's still rape. Mm -hmm. So I know. And again, we're talking about the series because like yourself, I haven't done, you know, historical yeah. research on this. So if we misspeak about things, it's because that's not where we're coming from. <laughs> no, but the, 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 first of all, the cast was wonderful in this. We'll yes. get to the, we'll get to the series later, but um, there is a scene where David's wife, his first wife, um, he ends up having a dream that he's supposed to marry her younger sister. And at first she doesn't, agree until she has the same dream. Mm -hmm. And so her younger sister who's underage at the age of 12 is forced to marry him, has a child um, with him when she's 14. So they go into that a little bit and there's a scene where she says to her bigger sister, mm -hmm. David's wife, like, who thought about how I felt in this? Um, I didn't get a say. You guys had these dreams. You had these, you know, and then the sisters, the first wife is so pulled into this. She's like, you think that I wanted to share David with you, but they're so, to your point about the cult, they're so married to this idea that this, that he is a prophet, mm -hmm. um, that there's no subjectivity at all about, there's no, you're, you don't even question this, like that, this is what you were born to do. And this poor kid, really a child, 
gives up her entire life for what? Because at the end, his mask drops. Mm-hmm. When push comes to shove, he didn't give a shit. He, it was about being in control. All of that charm, all of that fake, that facade, you start to see that fall. Yeah, it's it's complicated because um, there's this... So I'm going to say several things in this episode that you guys can go and read about on your own. Um, one of the things that I did was I did look on... I happened to subscribe to the New York Times, and so I looked on their website for articles, and there's, um, there's articles from that year or right around there, 1993, 1994, um, around like growing up under David Koresh. And um, there's this one article called Growing Up Under Koresh, Cult Children Tell of Abuses, and you know, they, the, they talk about the, there were survivors. And so they talk about the things that were done to them. And so what, what we often so far, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert, but I've done a lot of reading on cults. And what we do see is the, obviously the definition of a cult has the religious, you know, um, structure, but there's also this abusive component, right? So there are little. There are things like you know the children saying that they'd be struck with a wooden paddle, known as they called the wooden paddle the helper, um, to train, and that they would be instructed to fight each other, and if they didn't fight hard enough, they would be paddled. So, like spare the rod, spoil the child. Yeah. So there's this. Uh, what I've seen so far in the reading I've done about the three or four different cults that I've done extensive reading about is that there's this hope for the promised land and here's where we're going to how we're going to get there and if you follow all my rules because i am the messenger from god so everybody you know the leader gets to be the messenger from god and so everything has to go through me because i'm the one with the and i didn't choose this right yeah i am a victim and i am one of you and all of this but then that person is actually setting up all of these rules and there's often this um often a patriarchal the uh, narcissistic abusive mm -hmm. situation going on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've talked about like the underage, um, the rapes that are going on because we qualify rapes as, you know, when you're a child, you can't make that decision mm -hmm. um, under 16. So there's yeah. a, so David Thibodeau yeah. is played by um, Macaulay Culkin's brother, Kieran Culkin. <laughs> yeah. All right. Rory. By oh, Rory Culkin, the youngest. First of all, I thought he was fantastic. He was really good. And actually looked more like um, David Koresh. Like, it was really interesting. When <laughs> yeah, you look like, at, is that his kid? <laughs> yeah. He uh, was so great in this role. And I know we're not going to, to the Netflix series yet, but it made me look up David Thibodeau. They called him Tibbs because he had the same first name as Koresh. Um, so he went by his last name. And I think he his character who's based on a real person. And David Thibodeau has spoken out a lot about being one of the survivors. And, and also he's very clear in saying he did not uh, consider himself part of the Branch Davidians, but befriended David Koresh through music, ends up coming onto the compound. And like in the series, it depicts the whole, you know, I'm not sure if I'm buying into this, but you know, I'll, I'll check it out. And David um, really trying to manipulate him into it. So what ends up happening is the 12-year-old, the younger sister of his first wife, now that they know they're being watched by the Federal Bureau, he has to sort of pawn her off to someone so it doesn't, she's 14 now, it doesn't look like 
he's married to her and all this underage stuff had happened. So he pawns her off to Tibbs. Um, and they end up being quote unquote married um, in this. And, and he even says in real interviews, you know, he took that marriage very seriously. He did feel in some ways like he was saving her. Um, but David still had complete control over her and all of that. But he has a lot of really, he has a, I think he has a book out, um, but he talks a lot about his experience. But um, that role was really interesting because you saw, he was the only person who had some semblance of one foot kind of out still um, until about 75% in when he was like, okay, I guess I have to be all in. Um, but he, to me, was the central character of the whole Yeah, he's series. very compelling. He's yeah. a very compelling character. And I think we can just stop fighting ourselves and talk about the series and the story. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, that's obviously what we want to do. We keep we keep saying yeah, like we'll I mean, talk about that later, but I think it's I think it goes hand in. That's what we're talking about. It will. Today, I just, so. I'll, I'll just say one more thing before we get there, and we can talk about how they depict this in the series. But um, just the and, and I know we talked about this lightly at the beginning, but some of the information around um, the FBI and the ATF's involvement, and again, um, the way and this will maybe flow into how we're going to talk about the series. The way that they portrayed the FBI and the ATF in the series was very different than what I vaguely remember actually being portrayed on television. They protected the ATF and the FBI quite a bit. My understanding is Janet Reno was the one who gave the thumbs up to go in. Mm. Um, and Clinton actually said, I trusted her that whatever she said was going on was going on. And I let her make that decision. So, mm. um, so much controversy and they ended up really um not getting what they wanted in the end in the um in the trial but they also really just got a slap on the wrist so it ended up being really a big waste for pretty much everybody involved yeah um and 76 children died i'll just say that david um Thibodeau wrote a book called A Place Called Waco, A Survivor Story, and he's one of the, he was an on-set advisor for this series, the Waco series. So that's why we can, I mean, I, that's why I would personally, okay, so he's an on-set super, he's an on-set um, advisor, and um, Gary uh, Nosher, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, the FBI agent that's portrayed by Michael Shannon wrote a book called Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, and he was an on-set advisor for this series. So I think I would say that's why we're getting a skewed um, to their perspective, mm -hmm. because they're, in other words, um, the the viewpoint from the negotiators is is the Michael Shannon character's viewpoint of the mm -hmm. negotiations. He was is fantastic that, in that, this too. Is that they, yeah, he really was. I love him in everything. Boardwalk Empire, he was so great. And that they weren't, so the voice, what I would, what I think, I don't know about, I, I'm wondering what you think, but I mean, the FBI's portrayal in this is like there was one head guy that was, you know, pushing an agenda and then there was the Michael Shannon character that was pushing against that and then ultimately quit or what have you. And that 
I mean, that's that's convenient for a TV show. And I also understand that the onset advisor is that person that they can draw from the most. And so it's skewed. I I, I don't want to send up the FBI in this situation as much as they did, in other words. No, and, and when I'm... So why I bring this up is regardless of what the FBI did right or wrong in the situation, this is not the first time there have been situations where the FBI and the ATF have gone on and they've used unnecessary force. Whether that happened with Waco or not, we don't really know. What I liked about this series is that I think it set aside the politics of it, let's say this was a Hollywood movie made up and it didn't happen. The amount of influences and power struggles in those decisions, you're naturally going to have and sorry guys, but two men with a lot of testosterone, there were a lot of really big decisions to make. And I can see how it probably became incredibly contentious mm -hmm. at that time. So sure. um, I don't have facts. I wasn't there. I wasn't an agent. This is not an easy job to do. So there's no judgment. But it doesn't surprise me that you have very different um, personalities clashing and decisions when you're looking at if we go in, we could be stopping sex abuse. We could be stopping, but if we go in, we could also be killing people. I mean, there was a lot. There were there were a lot of decisions to be made yeah. in that moment. So I don't. We could. It, it, yes, maybe it's um, there's a bias or there's a one sided you know view because they were consultants on the film. But to me, that makes a lot of sense that they weren't all going along with the same idea of what no i completely you know. agree with you what i'm saying is that they're that we're getting more of that voice because all stories have a voice right like all mm -hmm. stories are coming from a place of like where the story maker is getting their information and i just noticed that you know um I mean, they had to make up a lot of what was going on yeah. in that house because we really only have Thibodeau to talk about that side of things um, in this in this series is what I'm talking about. Um, they may have consulted others or have you. I mean, I have links to the congressional investigations that you can watch on YouTube. There's um, evidence. Um, there's all kinds of like historical rabbit holes you can go down. But like as a as a media piece, like as a piece of art, um, they're, they're definitely giving you like how Koresh, they're definitely telling you how Koresh got his followers, right? Like in a, mm -hmm. you, you see how charismatic he was. And then they're also showing you how this one character, um, Gary's, you know, real life personage, like his viewpoint of the situation and what he was fighting, like what you're saying, like the things he was fighting against. Mm -hmm. Because I can't imagine being the negotiator in that type of position with all of those people. So hard. And oh. then what I also liked about the series is it didn't really sensationalize either side. You know, it, mm -hmm. it showed the um, complexities of both sides. It showed the narcissism on both sides. It showed the power struggle on both sides. Um, but I also think it, it really showed the amount of, put Koresh aside, um, the amount of victims that there were in this um on both sides, Absolutely. How, many, how many people died because of it. Absolutely. Um, so I think we have some more to say about the series after the break. Um, I know that they used 
You know, they use these real life um, people who were there as accounts and, and all that that we've been talking about. And then they are also, of course, they fictionalize some points because we don't know the answers to a lot of different things. So there are things that they fictionalized for the sake of dramatization um, that, you know, you may have liked or not liked. But um, we're going to get into it more after the break, what we thought of the series. So thanks for sticking around. We'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi there, we're back. We're talking about the recently released on Netflix miniseries about Waco. I thought this was cast really well. Oh, yeah. The cast was really good. I thought Taylor Kitsch did a great job. We talk a lot about Friday Night Lights on this show. We do. <laughs> so. and, and Melissa Benoist, who plays Rachel, the first wife, she was fantastic. Yeah. Like people maybe know her from Supergirl or Glee. Yeah. Um, she was fantastic. So Taylor Kitsch was um, Riggins on Friday Night Lights, for those of you who don't know. Um, what a then, different character for him, too. I didn't recognize him at first. With that mullet. Yeah, because it's so unattractive. Uh, and then he had lost so much weight. And he had lost weight and all that. But then once he started walking around, I've watched Friday Night Lights so much that <laughs> I was like, oh, that's his walk for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Julia Garner, who plays Michelle, she plays the 14-year-old sister. Um, Rachel, I love her. She was on The Americans. And she was also... She's on Ozark, right? She's on Ozark. She's And she's much, much older than her character. She looks so young. She's, I think, in like her mid to late 20s. She's or one of those, yeah. Um, playing a 14-year-old. She, I loved her on The Americans. She's so wonderful. And then John Leguizamo, who plays one of the officers, he's great. Um, but Paul Sparks, who plays Steve, which we haven't talked about Steve yet. Mm -hmm. So that's Koresh's sort of... Oh, so Steve was married to one of the women that Koresh has ends up having a child with. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the cult stuff, I think, which is, remember the line where he said, listen, I didn't, you know, if, if there was anybody I would choose to be the prophet, it would not be David. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he just happens to be that person or whatever. But he hated, he hated David. They had, they clashed. Yeah, he was a professor, and so he was going to argue with him, right? Because he was smart. Well, and he <laughs> took his wife and knocked her up. That too. He but... wasn't allowed to sleep with his own wife. Cameron Mannheim. Yeah, she's in it Tim's too. Plays mom. Yeah, I was like, oh, I love her. I want her to, I want to, I've been seeing her in small parts recently. Like she's been popping up. So I'm happy she's around. I really like her a lot. Um, what I was going to say about Taylor is that, you know, I thought he did a really good job of, I have seen Koresh's like videotapes. There's a lot of videotapes about him. Oh, his art, his intonation. I thought he did stuff. a really, yeah. I thought he did a great job of not only, giving us the flavor and doing some mimicking of Koresh's mannerisms, but like taking it to the next level. In other words, keeping that and doing that, but not just being a mimic, you know, mm -hmm. like 
I, um, he did a, I thought he did a brilliant job of displaying how charismatic he was, but also how like, how he was kind, you know, he played him like he was kind and it was, it was a very sympathetic portrayal. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are not sympathetic to Koresh being a human, (laughs) um, my apologies, but they they definitely showed like how his followers saw him as this, you know, complicated and they didn't always agree with him and they were being abused. But in their minds, he was this godlike person who was kind, was but like was a, also hitting them like you a know? messiah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and really, if this is a true portrayal, which we don't know, but if it is a p- true portrayal of him, it makes sense. Because what better way to get people to trust him and love him and follow him and not question him, but by, even if it's fake, um, being approachable, like the way they depict him with his son in the mornings Mm -hmm. and things like that. You know, because outwardly, he wasn't dangerous, but what he was, it was that sleight of hand. I'm going to show you this so you don't question that. They portrayed him as a true believer. Mm-hmm. That's how Taylor portrayed him and obviously the director and everybody. They portray So that's the difference for me is that I don't know enough about David Koresh to know whether that was true or not. Mm-hmm. I know I know enough about Manson and enough about Jim Jones and enough about some others to know that they were not. Mm-hmm. That it was manipulation right. and using. No, it did feel very real. But in this series, I'll just say in this series, the way they portrayed him as it the way Taylor came off was like a true believer, mm-hmm. like that he really believed in what he was saying, that he really believed that all these things, they, there was not, they did not give the narcissistic feel of it, of like there was an observing ego doing it. No, it was more of like a delusional disorder. Yeah. Right. That's, that's how the, they portrayed that's it. That's the sense that I got. Mm-hmm. And it felt more like a mental illness than like, like he a believed characterological. It. Yeah. yeah. Because do you remember the scene where he's, um, he's in bed with Rachel and they're having sex and he stops and he's like, I have to stop. I'm starting to enjoy it. And she says, David, we're married. You're allowed to enjoy it because that was the whole thing is for him. It was just about procreation. And so it wasn't what you didn't see was he manipulating her in that moment. He was actually stopping and going, I we have to stop. So yeah, it portrays him like this is hard for me. Um, so yeah, I don't know. They I don't. They don't portray him like a narcissistic cult leader. Nope. Not at all. And I don't know yeah. what he was or what he wasn't. At um, least until the. I mean, at the yeah. end, you start to see him break. But that's also because the way that the series portrays what happened, he was pushed up against a wall. His mm-hmm. people were dying. He was losing everything he created. They, the way that they portrayed it was, they had come in and intruded upon them. Um, everybody was loved on the compound. And so when you listen to Thibodeau talk, he's like, nope, that's not really how it went down. No, no. A lot of the, a lot of, so a lot of this series, I think it's like, what are six or seven parts? Um, six, I think, uh, a lot of it is fiction because we don't know a lot of the stuff that went on in the house. That part is a lot of fiction, except we have a lot of quotes from what I understand. And so they're trying to bring like quotes from people to life as a part of, as a part of this. And I think that they did. um, I think overall it's a, 
it's an interesting thing to watch and it's a good job on trying to bring to life both sides and trying to bring to life what may have, you know, a hypothetical of what may have been going on in the house. Um, and I enjoyed most of it. I mean, you know, I, it was, it was, um, I wasn't sure when I started it, if I was going to be bored, but it actually really carried my attention. Part of that was the, the cast was so great. Yeah. yeah um, and I think sure. I misspoke at the beginning when I said 76 people, I said 76 children, I think it's 76 people. I think 21 children died. That's mm -hmm. not any better. But um, I think for me, watching this as an adult, and I understand it's a Hollywood portrayal, but watching the story as an adult and looking at the casualties around it, um, I, I think I just watched it from a different lens. Yeah, I mean, we're we're definitely, you know, any kind of conspiracy, conspiracy theorists or historians listening to us, you know, that, that we're not talking about the history. And there are a lot of historical references that you could go down, you know, a history rabbit hole with. There's lots and lots of interesting things. We're kind of coming at it from a, was this any good and... Just the reactivity. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. how do you react to it psychologically? Like, do you, like, I think there's, I guess the reason why I bring up the way they portray David Koresh as being sympathetic and delusional and that he really believed is that's, that makes him entirely sympathetic because when we, when we portray people as I'm going to use my, me pretending to be sympathetic as a way to manipulate you, that has a very different Yes. Meaning and feel and diagnosis even. So um, I don't know. It's super interesting because that's that's what makes this different than the David Koresh story a little different than some of the cult leaders that. Um, yeah. Like I was saying, it felt it felt more like a maybe not a psychosis, but like a delusional disorder or something where he had uh, really believed mm -hmm. this to be true. Yeah, one one thing I did read um, in preparing for this is that the relationship that Koresh has with uh, John Leguizamo's character, the FBI, it, there really was a guy that infiltrated, but that the um, they portray him in this as a sympathizer, as if he's being convinced. Yep, and that's not true. <laughs> if you, if you watch the, um, and I haven't watched them in their entirety, but there's snippets of that guy, uh, in the congressional, the hearings and stuff and the investigations, you can see clips of the real guy and he was not what his, I think his problem was that the timing of the infiltration, it was not that they, he didn't want them to infiltrate. He absolutely did this, this officer, but, um, this agent, sorry. Um, but it was the timing that he protested against. And they show that in this miniseries, but they also try to portray like he was going over to David Koresh's way of thinking. And that's not accurate. Yeah. But for dramatic purposes. Um, like when he goes to the wedding and it was an interesting yeah. dramatic piece of it. And I think what it was is it was playing to the story that these filmmakers wanted to tell, which was, they wanted the viewer to believe that they wanted us to think, oh, well, he may, he's making some sense or he, you know, they wanted us to have feelings of sympathizing with him mm -hmm. and have feelings of like, oh yeah, well maybe that is true. Or maybe that, you know, the convincing. And I, you know, sometimes the, I think shows forget to do that. Like they just portray people as these, 
manipulative narcissist. Or like very one-dimensional. Very one-dimensional. And it's like, you know, if you're sitting in judgment of the followers, I think that, I personally think that that is the wrong way to go. I do too. And I think like everything, I agree with everything you're saying, which was the director wanted us to feel like a member. Mm -hmm. He wanted us to understand maybe why these people stayed. Yeah. And like you said, so the, whether, whether the portrayal of Koresh was the actuality of the man that's how those members saw him. And I think that's a really powerful way to get the viewers, like you were saying, to get in the head and the feelings. And, and Thibodeau says, like uh, the actual David Thibodeau says, whether or not you want to believe in what they believed in, these people, and whether you think it was crazy or not, for these people, it was very real. Yeah, And I think that that's one of the reasons I enjoyed the series so much was I didn't feel like they were sensationalizing him so we could see a different side and not think anything poorly about what may have gone down there. I think it was more of, I want you to understand how easy it was for these people to love him and trust him. And that was, that that translated for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's in line with what we talk about on an ongoing basis, which is that uh, it's a person and it's a person that was created out of whatever it was created out of, you know, childhood experiences, delusional mental illness. We don't know, but it was, uh, it's a person. And then those other people following him, those are people searching for something mm-hmm. They're That's, that's what cult members are is there are people that are searching for something they are searching for spiritual truth. They're searching for spiritual um, savior, being saved. I mean, they're 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 wanting something, and these people come into their lives at a time when they really need that, and they provide that. And they portrayed Koresh as a loving, fatherly father, a loving father who had a sense of humor and cared about them and was really doing it for the right reasons. Now I'm not saying that he was, I'm just saying that's how they portrayed him. And that's how they saw him. And I imagine that that's how most of the followers, most of the time. Now we know that there are followers that like left. (laughs) So. Well, if you're looking at this because they did, portray him and he did believe he was a prophet so they portrayed him like jesus Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. and steve's character was a lot like judas it was just you know there were there were so many parallels um and i and i think that i don't want to speak for the people who no longer can speak for themselves because they passed away in this but that they did see this almost like a like a saw him like a messiah and this is how they were going to be saved i'm sure at least in the beginning you know Um, they were looking for something. I want to mention there's, um, there's a documentary called Waco, the rules of engagement that was made. That's really controversial. There's also, uh, the producers of that documentary made their own. It was so, it was so controversial and divisive that the producers of that documentary made their own like rebuttal documentary called Waco, a new revelation. Um, the congressional investigations are available. Uh, there, 
there's an archive from Texas. The Texas Rangers did their own um, gathering of evidence. The Dallas News has a collection of evidence. Um, so there are a lot of ways to go down um, a very historical route to find out what uh, the facts as we know them are and what the controversies are that we started out with a couple of the questions, the who shot first and the who started the fire are still questions that aren't answered, but you can go down that route and find out the historical context if you're into facts. Um, and then there's the memoir side of it. So personal accounts, which as um, people in the psychology field, those are often more interesting. I get slammed sometime on social media for telling people to read memoirs. Those aren't facts. It's like, well, I'm, I'm a therapist. Yeah, I, it's I like, like someone's experience. I want people's stories. <laughs> yeah. 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 So <laughs> yeah, not everything so, is about facts. <laughs> so I, you know, there's the history mm -hmm. and that's great. And I can provide those um, links and resources because I have them right here in front of me. Um, but then there's the memoirs, you know, Gary's memoir and David Thibodeau's memoir, right. um, personal accounts. And they, they um, were on the set for this. So in some ways you can say that this like really is their story, mm -hmm. like part of, you know, they were there. So mm -hmm. they were able to say what they needed to say. Um, Another thing I read was that that when they first now this is totally anecdotal so I do not know if it's true <laughs> I just read that when they first read the first script that they did for this mini series was mostly based on that old documentary the Waco the rules of engagement mm -hmm. and so then they got these guys in the two people that had actually been there and were two characters in there and then it slowly shifted and changed and you know yep moved into did you read that too yep yeah, um, it, Tibbs, Thibodeau had a big, he contributed quite a bit to this series. Yeah, he was on set. For yeah. um, anything else you got? No. So we're going to come back and do our What the Hell segment. So we'll be right back. Hi, we're back. What the hell? So what the hell is a segment that we do where Kathy and I both find a story, a true crime story um, that's makes us say what the hell? I have a <laughs> uh, couple idiots on mine. <laughs> I do too. I hope it's not the same one. Go ahead. You go first. There's plenty of idiots out there for us to <laughs> <Yeah>. share. So <laughs> this happened in 2007. Two burglars thought the prime target in North Richland Hills, Texas, would be a store that sells personal home defense security systems and accessories. So in their defense, they managed to stuff over $10,000 worth of surveillance equipment. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. <laughs> yes, please. They're stealing surveillance equipment from a surveillance store. While being surveilled. <laughs> Mostly security cameras and house alarms into a couple of trash cans in only one minute and 15 seconds. That's actually pretty fast. It's really fast. All while being recorded by 17 security cameras mm -hmm. of the same make and model as the ones they were stealing. There were no less than, this is funny, <laughs> there were no less than 12 warning signs across the front of the store advising criminals that among other things, someone besides Jesus is watching you 
and neither that someone nor Jesus is going to be happy if you break the law. <laughs> so um, there was only, there was one good vantage point of the getaway car from these 17 cameras, which is kind of sad for the store to only get one good shot of it if they had 17 cameras up. Super sad. Um, yeah. And um, including the license plate, which was not stolen, but registered in one of their names. So the police tracked them down uh, to one of their homes two days later because the day before the rob the day after the robbery, the police were hampered by too many car accidents to rush the investigation. So they had they ended up arresting them after. So let's just recap (laughs) 17 security cameras on them while they're stealing security cameras the car is registered in their name and then they still pled not guilty. <laughs> well, they obviously had a lawyer. Pretty <laughs> tell ball- them. Pretty ballsy. Tell them not to say they were guilty. Oh my God. It's funny because when you started and you said two robbers, I was like, oh my God, it is the same it's story. It's the same one. But um, so <laughs> mine is, uh, okay, here we go. Most criminals prefer to go for a fetching ski mask when staging a heist. It helps shield their identity from pesky witnesses, and you can whip it off easily when you reach a safe location, and none would be the wiser. These two, however, are not most criminals. These would-be robbers decided to cover their faces by drawing on them (laughs) with felt-tip pens. (laughs) Permanent ones. Oh, God. I'm showing Kathy the photo. Yeah, that's not coming off anytime soon. So, so... Police tracked them down in their getaway car, and it wasn't long before they found Matthew and Joey desperately trying to rub the scribbles off of all over their faces. Oh, my God. And then the article says awkward. That's awesome. (laughs) Hey, guys, Shannon, I have a great idea. (laughs) What's that? Let's go use felt tip pens on our faces. Oh, that sounds cool. So then what? (laughs) In in my um, treatment with people, and I remember we used to say this a lot. Uh, Kathy and I both used to say this a lot in addiction treatment: is play the tape through. Yep, just play it out. What do you think's going to happen? But it's a it's a it's our psych tip of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you think you're going to want to do something, just play the just tape through in your mind. Play it out and say, "How will this work?" And so, if someone had, if either Matthew or Joey had played the tape through, they would have figured out this glitch. And not look like they'd been drunk and their friends had drawn on their faces. Because that's basically what it looks like. Like they fell asleep. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of Waco, the Netflix miniseries. And please tune back in on Friday for our Shrink Chat show. Where we discuss, um, well, some horror movies and some other things we're watching. And Kathy tortures me with trivia. Mm, I do. Yeah. See you then. Bye for now. Uh, This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.